Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas. I'm one of your hosts today. We also have Jeff Rutt with us, one of our co-hosts. Jeff, say hello. Hello. Hey, good to be here. Thanks, Jeff. All right, Jeff. Awesome to have you here. We also have Brent Bishore with us, who is the CEO of Permanent Equity. He's also married and has three daughters. So I I don't think between the three of us today, there's a son in the place. Uh, Okay, maybe there's one son. Uh, I guess, Jeff, maybe you have one son. I have two girls. Uh, Jeff has boys and girls, I suppose. And Brent has girls. So we've got a lot of Got a lot of daughters in this crew. Uh, Brent, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. All right, Jeff, let's uh, let's get moving. Why don't you uh, start by uh, uh, yeah. asking Brent some questions? Yeah, thank you for being here, Brent. Yeah, just maybe just kick it off by telling us a little bit about where'd you grow up and what was your family like? Yeah. Oh, well, again, thanks for having me on the show. I, um, I grew up in Joplin, Missouri, so very southwest corner of the state near Oklahoma, Arkansas, and, uh, and Kansas. And my mom was a, a college professor while I was growing up. My, uh, my dad worked at the same company for, gosh, almost 40 years in government relations. And wow. yeah, I mean, I, look, I, I you know, two-parent household, you know, my, uh, you know, I would say we were kind of a, just a pretty typical, typical family growing up, had a lot of changes in the family over the course of kind of while I was growing up. I mean, we you know, grew up in a sort of middle-class slab home. And then I remember at the age of, uh, gosh, at the age of maybe 10 or 11, somebody called me a rich kid. And I said, are we rich? <laughs> and I, I came home, my, my mom said, no, we're not rich, but, but your grandfather has become quite wealthy. And he ended up running a company, the same company my, my dad worked for. And so I got to experience, it was really interesting. I got to experience, you know, sort of what, what is the effect of wealth and, and, and how is that how does that have maybe some 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 great enabling things and and maybe where, where are some traps along the way, and you know from a faith journey perspective, I I remember I was probably gosh nine or ten, and I remember we were driving exactly where we were in Joplin by Carl Richard Bowling Alley, and I told my mom I didn't believe in God, and you know gosh I was a handful. God bless her. She yeah anyway yeah. having to with me as a son. How old were you at that point? I think nine or ten. Okay. Yeah, wow. kind of. Kind of yeah, and uh, I remember my brother was in the back seat, and he started crying, and and you know my mom, my mom said, "Well, you kind of gotta, gotta figure some stuff out. You know, it's your it's your job to your job to figure that stuff out." And so, you know, I would say I uh, you know grew up in I mean Joplin. The joke is the buckle of the Bible Belt down there. You know, sort of everyone's culturally Christian or had been historically, yeah. and and so you know anybody who's a good person in Joplin, it's like going to church, right? You can hold your breath between the churches in Joplin. So, you know, you know, I would say for me growing up, it was, it was, you know, certainly culturally Christian would pray before meals, but, but I didn't, there wasn't a centrality to the, to the life of Jesus in, in our house. And, and so, you know, went up to college and did college things. I lived in the fraternity house for three years, uh, went to school uh, on the East coast and, I, I chose the school, Washington Lee University, because it uh, it was the most difficult, rigorous, most rigorous school academically my junior year. It had produced the most presence and CEOs of any school in the country, and it was the second biggest party school in the country. So you can see the intersection of those uh, of those things. 
And yeah, I would say, you know, you, you get to college, you start getting exposed to more and more big ideas. I went to a phenomenal high school, actually, in Joplin. We were the uh, beneficiaries of a family that really stepped out and, and created an incredible college prep school. So okay. I thought college was going to be hard. And in fact, my high school was more difficult than, than college was. And I've gotten exposed to a lot of things in high school that, um, you know, certain benefited me academically in college, but, you know, so really majored you, in college. Yeah. <laughs> so Brent, did you have any, tell me about any entrepreneurial instincts as uh, you were growing up? Yeah, you know, um, I... So I like to buy and sell baseball cards. I remember, you know, being younger and, and we, you know, we, I was always interested in, in, in business in general, but, you know, to be honest, like my, my family was not incredibly entrepreneurial. I mean, it was, a, it was a, it, it was definitely, obviously my, my grandfather ran a company, but, but kind of was not the, the entrepreneurial side was not something that I necessarily had been drawn to strongly. But I was always interested in it. But I, I wasn't the guy who, you know, you meet people who are like, oh, I've been studying Warren Buffett since I was like six years old. And, you know, that was not me. Like I was not, I was not that guy. So I would say I was just, you know, kind of, you know, normal kid. And then when I got to college, like I had no idea what I wanted to do. None. You know, I thought, you know, maybe I'd run for, for political office someday or get involved in politics. I kind of was interested in that, majored in politics in college, but I had no idea. And, and, and so, you know, I had a great time at college, you know, did, did fine academically, but, um, had no idea what I'm do, and so somebody told me, "Hey, you should. If you have no idea what you can get to do, just go get your law degree or your MBA." And so I tried to go get both, oh. and uh, that's what brought me back to Mizzou, and that's how I met my wife. And, and you know, it's kind of interesting how God places these things kind of yeah. in front of you. So. Yeah. So how in the world did you get into private equity? Yeah, well, I, I, I joked with you guys before. I you know, I call myself the Forrest Gump of private equity because I've you know I've never taken a finance class in my life. I can barely open up Excel. And I've never worked in another firm. So I, uh, I was getting my law degree, my MBA. I'd met my, my wife who was getting her PhD at the zoo. And I called her the sexy scientist for a year before I asked her out. It's inside. <laughs> uh, that tells you anything. But anyway, we, we, we got married and, and she had a couple of years left. And I started, ended up starting a business. I, I, I dropped out of law and MBA. So I, I, I got neither, neither a lawyer nor, nor an MBA. And that led into kind of starting another business and a couple other things. And then I got introduced to a guy who said, Hey, you should meet this guy. He, uh, he just got left at the altar for the second time. I took that to mean I should try to go buy his business. Cause well, why else would you tell me that? And the guy had no idea that I was going to do that. And I, I don't know, I'm 39. I, people say I don't look 39 and I looked about 14 then and sat across the table from this, you know, grizzled business owner. And literally he said, why am I here? Like, like that was his first, like, like, nice to meet you. Like, why am I sitting here? And, you know, I was like, well, sir, I'd like to buy your business. And he, he said, honestly, it's so true. He goes, he goes, uh, two grown men have tried to buy my business. You know, what, what, what you know, what is going to, what is going to cause you to expect that you could do it. And anyway, long story short, got an SBA loan, you know, leveraged everything we had and uh, asked my, my newly married wife to sign a personal guarantee. She was like, what's that? And I was like, uh, don't worry about that. Just sign it. You know, no big deal. And, no big deal. and Anyway, so I uh, ended up buying the business and doing, doing quite well with it. And then that led into really a, a whole new world, which is what happens to all these smaller companies where there's no succession plan. You know, I mean, you can look at rough stats. It's kind of hard. They're, they're very rough. But, you know, about 70% of successful small businesses are, are still owned by people who are considered baby boomers, right, who, who need to do something with the business. And about 70% of those roughly don't have an exit strategy. 
So I don't have a son or a daughter, a means to transfer the business. So, you know, a big chunk of the productive assets in small business are, you know, a lot of them are unsaleable, but are, but are certainly there's no design of the transfer. And so really opened my eyes to that when I bought in 2009 and then, you know, spent the next almost decade kind of toiling away in obscurity, you know, did a couple more deals, ended up with a small portfolio myself, and then was approached to take outside investment, ended up taking $50 million in very unusual type of funds in uh, 2017. And then in 2019, raised uh, $300 million. So, and we're, we're currently investing that fund. So uh, scaled quickly, wow. learned a lot about, learned a lot about systems and process and you know, these, these regulatory bodies called FINRA and the SEC, which if you're not familiar, just fantastic organizations to work with. They're really, really great. Intensely so, uh, familiar, unfortunately. Uh, yes, exactly. Exactly. No, actually, it's been, it's been not too bad. But, uh, but no. So yeah, that, uh, like I said, forced gump private equity in the sense of like, I, I totally fell backwards into what we're doing. And, and you know, I'm just so grateful that God's put me in a position to, uh, to be able to do it. So one of the things that, that you said is you took some unusual capital. What, is that, what does that mean? What, what was unusual about it? Well, maybe to, 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 to even take a step back from that to zoom out, I don't know how much you all know, and I don't know how familiar your listeners are with traditional private equity. So it has a bad reputation for a reason. And, and, and I would say is my view on it was I didn't want to be a private equity firm. I never considered ourselves to be a private equity firm. We were we were doing as most families that I think had built a lot of wealth were doing, which was slowly compounding our own capital and doing so with, with hopefully a long-term mindset, long-term view, using low debt. We like to, to keep leadership in place and work with the team that was there and really just try to augment talents, resources, and, and, and you know, help create flourishing. And if you think about you know, all the things I just said, that's in many ways the opposite of the reputation, at least, that traditional private equity has. Right. Traditional private equity's model is to buy, uh, lever it up as much as they possibly can, put as, as little skin in the game as they possibly can, try to sell it within a very short period of time. Typically, you're going to be squeezing out all the cost structure out of the organization. And so, you know, really skinning the thing down, which basically means firing people, just call it what it is. Right. So, so fire a bunch of people, skinning it down, hopefully improve earnings, you know, maybe do a few other things to it and then try to sell it to somebody else within a you know, really short period of time. Like, like, Two, three, four years. So, if you think about that, you know, it, it really inhibits the way you work with people. You're going to see people as objects, not as people. You know, they're going to look at they're going to be the, the means, not the end. You're going to, you know, having a lot of debt. You're going to have to have all your free cash flow, all your optionality about what to do with that is going to go to paying down debt. And you're really going to be working with a bank if anything goes, you know, even a little bit wrong. And you know, most of the time, all the leadership team gets their heads cut off. And so you have a lot of people with a lot of institutional memory that, that, and a lot of families that are being supported and, and a lot of people are going to be out of job. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't want to go down that path. And I saw it as, well, why in the world would, would, you know, we take on capital that would cause us to become like everyone else. So I just really didn't even have a, I didn't have a view on how we could do that. And so we didn't raise outside capital. We, we said no to a number of people who approached us and then um, had a question asked of me that had never been asked, which was, what would it take for you to take our money? Like tell, tell you write the story, you write the, you design it. What would it take? It was an interesting challenge. And so I went away and I, I created a structure just, I mean, back of the napkin, blank page, whatever, you know, analogy you want to use and just from scratch said, okay, what would it look like for us to maintain who we are and how we like to operate 
And so it looks like really weird private equity funds. We lock the capital for 30 years. So there's no liquidity for 30 years. You know, my joke when we were fundraising was plan on never getting your money back. You know, like that's just, just considered gone. And, you know, we typically use no debt in our transactions. We like to keep the leadership team in place and we'd like to hold them indefinitely. So literally it's like the exact opposite of, of, of private equity. And so we did it. We, we raised the money looking back on it had no idea the odds of us being able to raise the capital seem smaller now than even then had no idea what we were doing. So, you know, if you don't know what you're doing then you can really let God do his thing. And God, you know, gave us just enough character at the time to handle the additional resources he was giving us and, you know, continue to pile it on. So just trying to be, trying to be faithful stewards of that. Very different model for sure. And, and I think your name says it all, uh, permanent equity. <laughs> That's a pretty good uh, descriptor of, of, of your approach. You know, I was looking at the holdings that you have just on your website and, and some of the language you use about the kind of companies you're buying. It looks like a lot of kind of traditional industrial maybe companies. Uh, how would you describe maybe the size and the industries that you're mostly interested in? Yeah, well, so we, we often get get told we're generalists, meaning we don't have a specialty. And I, I I very much disagree with that. So we are specialists, but we're specialists instead of in an industry, we're specialists in a, in a style of company. So the style of company that we're specialists in typically is around 3 million on the low end in earnings to around eight to 10 on the high end in earnings. I mean, we'll, we'll go as high as 15, maybe even 20 million a year of earnings. So not revenue, but the sort of net income, free cash flow of the business. These are what we call adolescent businesses. They're, they're too big to be small, too small to be big. They've all got the same problems, which is usually if we do our job correctly, if we choose correctly, they are in an industry that's durable. The need is, is enduring. It's, they're not a flash in the pan. They're not some hot new fad. It's not you know, something that's going to go away. It's, it's something that you know, has been proved out over a long period of time. And they're really darn good at, at what they do, right? So they're just not good at the business of business. They're not excellent at, you know, we, we joke that everything tastes like chicken layer of business, right? Where it doesn't matter if you're manufacturing or if you're recruiting for the military or if you're doing construction, whatever the thing that you're doing, look, you got to find customers. You got to do the work. You got to price the work. You got to do it on time. You know, you got all the inputs and outputs that, that, that are really the same no matter where. And there's obviously, of course, nuances to each one of those and how you bill and you know, what, what's the labor markets look like and all those things. But, but we try to specialize in the everything tastes like chicken layer and really help these companies augment with some unusual skill sets that we think are really valuable to help, to help release lids on the business. So, you know, the businesses we're buying, you know, are typically growing eight to 10% full cycle. And, and we, you know, are trying to help grow them a lot faster than that, but not, not force them to grow. We're in no hurry. In fact, our, you know, our, our rule number one is do no harm. We want to be really humble in our approach. We want to be thoughtful and kind towards people. We want to get to know them. We want to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Because you can't, if you don't know the rules, you can't change the rules. And if you do, you're, you're going to screw a bunch of stuff up. And, you know, we think about changing companies as like a big ball of yarn. You know, you pull on one thread and you think you're just pulling that thread. And then all of a sudden half the ball falls off the back end, right? And you're like, well, that turns out that one thread is connected to everything else. So, you know, very unusual style that we have, whereas it's just the exact opposite of, like I said, traditional private equity. Traditional private equity is known for their, you know, what's the 90-day plan? So after we close the first 90 days, we're going to make all these changes. It's going to be a completely new company. We take the exact opposite, which is, gosh, a heck of a lot longer than 90 days. We just want to go and listen to people, talk to people, get to know people as people, hear what their fears are and 
what they're excited about and what's interesting and what's not, and and just try to be good long-term partners with them. Oh, that's it's a really good overview of, of the approach to the business. Now, of course, this is the Generous Business Owner Podcast, and uh, we met, I think, because of Alan Barnhart. Our, uh, uh, Jeff Rutt and I's uh, uh, third co-host is Alan Barnhart, and I think you went to uh, see him in the last year. What, what, drew you to, what drew you to Alan? Man, I tell you what, uh, what didn't draw me to Alan? I met, I met Alan, uh, I'd heard of him, and actually, I'd read him in a book called Practicing the King's Economy which is one of my favorite books. And I give that book out all the time. Uh, my wife actually sits on the board of Covenant College. And so we're, we're, we get to chit Chattanooga. We love the college. We're huge fans of, of what they're doing there at the Chalmers Center. And, and anyway, I'd read about Alan and then I, I got to meet him last summer. And, you know, people that I really find interesting that are doing, doing things differently. I always ask him, hey, do you mind if I come visit? And Alan said, sure, come on visit. And I said, okay, well, let's get a date. And so got a date and I was just able to sit down with him for, gosh, I don't know, four or five hours and just ask him all the, all the questions about why and how he's done what he's done and not on the business side. I mean, yes, he's an incredible business mind. He's built a, you know, an amazing business and you know, great team there. But I was really just more curious about how he decided to, you know, how and why to give it all away, right? And, and how he thinks about being an excellent steward of the resources and, and, and what his principles are, how he chooses what to get involved in, what's driving the decision-making on how they do it. And then obviously, of course, what's the structure that, that makes the most sense to, uh, to do that. So my wife and I are interested in the same topics. And, and so it's just a, it was a wonderful day of learning for me. He, he, he was incredibly generous with his time. That's exactly the reason we're doing this podcast, frankly. Is that we we think that uh, uh, Jeff and I are beneficiaries of uh, Alan's inspiration. I'm a beneficiary of uh, Jeff's story, and 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 we're we're just trying to encourage other business owners to think about this, just like you are. So maybe share with us, if if you don't mind, where you are in that journey uh, of your own family. You're you're still pretty young, uh, at least compared to me. <laughs> uh, so it's early days. Everybody's at a different age and stage. We, we don't expect anybody to have it all figured out. I don't have it all figured out. So uh, just maybe if you don't mind just sharing where you are in that sort of generosity journey, how does that maybe play into your business right. now? How would you like it to, you know, you don't have to have all the answers, but we just love to hear where you, where you are today. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you asking. I would say the the principles unchanging the 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 execution of it is constantly changing so the underlying principle is you know my wife and i believe that that everything we have has been a gift from god we believe that thankfully we're not in control because we're idiots and we need god's grace and mercy and and we want to be good stewards of whatever he wants to give us and so as he's continued to give us more and more we've tried to give more and more and in a way that is you know, redemptive. I, I think that, you know, if you never try to give away fairly large sums of money, it seems easy, kind of like buying a business for cheap and then just making it better, right? Like, how hard can that be? You know, it turns out in giving is the CX same way. So we're trying to be as thoughtful towards giving and, and not just writing checks, but also what does it mean for our time? What does it mean for our emotional involvement? How do we solve problems for the organizations that we get involved with? And, and hopefully, how do we not try to make problems? How do we not make it about us? And so, you know, I don't talk about the topic much publicly because we try to do everything anonymously. We try to, you know, make it about, about you know, helping people and not, and, and truly about giving the glory to God, not, not getting glory for ourselves. But 
you know, I mean, the bottom line is we're going to try to give all of it away during our lifetime. I, you know, our daughters, we have three daughters. We're going to try to make sure that they have enough to do something, but not enough to do nothing. And we're going to, you know, try to just, just be thoughtful about how that looks over time. So we've got a handful of organizations now, I would say, gosh, six, six to eight organizations that we're, that we, we really care for. The, the mission is typically, I mean, I think that there's, there's great things to be done in the arts. And I think there's a lot of culture building that, that I think are really valuable things to be done. And I, I love people that are doing those. Our heart is not towards culture building. Our heart is towards those in need, the, the widows and the orphans, and, and, and how do we take care of the least among us? And so all of our efforts are towards people that, that are in, in situations of need. And so, you know, right now we're, we're just giving, trying to give on an annual basis. I mean, we're going to probably be setting up, it's a little bit unusual. This is a nuance that I'm not sure would be actually interesting to your, to your audience or maybe even to you all, but being FINRA and SEC registered and, and having the business model that we have, like I, I actually can't do you know, what Alan's done. I can't actually do what the Green family's done, right? With Hobby Lobby, like it, it would actually destroy our business and it would not, it would, it would cause a bunch of problems with how we're regulated if, if it were to quote unquote to be given away and, and somebody else was under, it was under different control. So we have a little bit different set of challenges in, in how we do that, but we're excited about God opening up pathways and doorways. And I mean, for us right now, like we, we think that we're, we're trying to be faithful with it, let's put it that way. So. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the execution, Brent. I'd love to zoom out just for a minute for the person that's out there listening and driving in their car or, or running on the treadmill listening to, to this, who also believes that God owns their business and, and that, that they're stewards of it. Talk a little bit about how you just, just unpack that a little bit for us on why you believe that and what does that mean to you, your, your, the other folks in, in your company? Yeah, just just unpack that a little bit. Yeah, I, I had this question asked me one time by a dear friend and, and a senior pastor at our church. He said, "Hey, do you think that uh, do you think that you'll have more money than God wants you to have?" And I said, "Well, no, m- maybe I I don't. Yeah, yeah, probably. I don't know. You know, and, and it's an interesting question, right? It, it it really begs the question of, you know, why do we why are we called the Sabbath?" Right? Why are we Why are we called to rest and rest in in His finished work? Um, do we actually believe that or not? And and right, my, you know, where my heart goes is I'm a, you know, I'm an Enneagram three. I'm, I'm an ENTJ. I'm a driver. I'm a performer. I I wanna I wanna go take the hill, right? And what that leads me, you know, where, where my heart goes astray is it's all about me. It's about what I can do. It's about you know an incredible self focus and pride issues and all those things. At the end of the day, I, I know that all this is a gift. I have no way to explain anything that's been given to me, my marriage, my faith. I mean, I was an ardent atheist in my 20s. I mean, this is something we didn't really talk about, but I, I came to faith in my, in my early 30s. Mm. And I was, a, I was a vehement opponent to the kingdom of Jesus. And so the more that I've seen that the, the gift of kindness that I've been given and uh, the gift of grace, and, and it, it, it you know, it's really melted my heart and continues to melt my heart. I mean, I, this is an ongoing struggle. I mean, even the last, Three months have been a period of surrender, areas of my life that I didn't even realize where I'm surrendered. And I'm sure I'm going to have more surrender that's needed next month and the month after. And so it really comes from a place of surrender. I mean, if, if I truly believe that God's in control, then, and it is all his, then, I mean, gosh, like, how can I not want to, want to give it all, uh, give it all away? I mean, why would I, why would I try to you know, keep it and hoard it and, 
try to build my build my foundations on those on those pillars of sand. So yeah, yeah, that's a, a, absolutely, Brent. So how does that relate to and uh, the other folks in your on your team? How many other folks do you have in your in your company? And and as you talk about you being a steward of what God owns, yeah, how does that relate to other folks in your team? And yeah, yeah. talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, so this is this is an interesting. Maybe we can even get into a little bit of debate on this topic. I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to hear some feedback. So, so we are not a quote unquote Christian organization. I don't. I don't know what a Christian organization means because, to my knowledge, no one can can profess the name of Jesus. That's an organization, right? It's all about people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't. It's not a requirement to work at permanent equity or in permanent equity to be of any sort of faith or of any persuasion. Now, we certainly want shared values. Uh, we certainly want, uh, and a lot of those, I would argue, uh, whether they know it or not, are, are are Christian values. But you know, everyone spans the spans the, the gap. I mean, it's it is it is. We've got atheists on on our team. We've got uh, devout believers. We've got we got everyone of, of all different persuasions on the team. And so the way we handle, I mean, I, I, I guess this is maybe a little bit of my libertarian streak in me is I I don't want to be told what to do, and I don't want to tell them what to do, and I want them to use their resources that they earn. And that God's given them to steward for them to do it. Now, I certainly I'm going to be you know I'm going to be transparent about how I feel about things and how we have open debate and discussions in our office about how to use resources. But all of us are excited about you know helping the families flourish. I mean, there's about a thousand people across the organization, so it's wow. you know it's pretty diverse. Um, now, there's a core team of us in Columbia, Missouri that um, there's about 15, 16 of us here that that you know sort of are at the at a different different level, right? Depending on the portfolio companies, but we own. We own the majority stake in, in, in companies that have about a thousand employees right now, and that, that'll grow. You know, by the time we get done with our our current fund, we'll probably be at you know three or four thousand employees would be my guess. And so, that's you know, a lot of families, it's yeah. a lot of lives, it's a lot of a lot of kids, and and we take that very seriously. And I would say, no matter you know what people's persuasion on the team is and what they believe to be reality, you know, we all share a desire to really help help those companies and those people flourish. So, but I. I take the resources that God's given me after everyone gets paid, and and those are mine to do what I will. And and other people on the team, it's it's between them and the Lord what they do with mm-hmm. theirs. Yeah, awesome. One thing that really struck me about your background, you you were talking about your study in politics, but you know there there might be some uh, people listening to this that think I bet they're inspired by the way by uh, say you know. You, you think you're the the guy with the uh, unlikely background to be in the business you're in, and, and maybe people feel led to go into a business, you know, uh, that they don't feel like they have a background in, or their family had a background in, or they don't have the right education. So, I, I, but I think there's a little there's a little nugget in your emphasis of what you studied in college that that really is going to help explain kind of what your passions are, and and I think uh, uh, that's going to be interesting. So maybe tell. Uh, tell somebody uh, walking down the street, listen to this. What was your uh, what was your emphasis? It was political science or politics, right? But what was the emphasis? Yeah, so I it was an emphasis in poverty studies. So fascinating, um, fascinating background. And I think that you may think that the explanation around this may be very different than the actual what you're expecting. I think may be different. So I I tested out of some stuff for college, and so I got done with my major at the end of my sophomore year. Like I was done, I could I could have graduated. I just needed you know, the number of credit hours, and I met this guy named Harlan Beckley, who ended up becoming a mentor of mine, who I, I think is a believer. I've never really had the conversation with him at the time, 
I certainly was not a believer of anything. I was, I was very into new atheism. I was excited about hard truth, right? Like just the reality, you know, we are, we are nothing more than the descendants of pond scum, right? And, you know, life is harsh and, and, and all that. And Harlan just showed me a better way. The aroma of his life was so strong and he was so full of love and of kindness and generosity and a softness about him, a tenderheartedness uh, that I'd never met anybody like that. I had no other professors like that. I had, I really had no one in my life that I've seen model that type of behavior. And, you know, I know certain people have problems with this, with this phrase, but, you know, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary was certainly the way that he lived his life. And, and I don't think he ever talked to me directly about Jesus, but, but his imprint on my life was indelible. And it was the imprint of, of, of the presence of God, right? The presence of Christ. And so I was just so drawn to him that I was like, I just want to take, take things that he's involved in. Oh, wow. And so he was, he was leader of the, the, you know, shepherd poverty program is what it was called. It was the, the, the interdisciplinary study of human capability. And it was an interesting topic. You know, I mean, I, uh, like I said, I grew up, you know, part of my, part of my time growing up was middle-class. Well, actually all of it was kind of middle-class-ish. And then, you know, I had this, had this sort of tangential brush with, with a lot of wealth. And so I was just curious about, you know, what, how complex is the issue in the topic? And anyway, ended up studying it for really two years at the end of my, did my, you know, did a thesis on it, got an emphasis in it. And it, it really shaped a level of nuance in me around that. But I was an atheist. You got to remember, like I was not, I, I was passionate about helping people. And I had that, this feeling of conscience in me, but I couldn't explain it. I couldn't explain why I believed what I believed. I couldn't explain why I thought there was a right and a wrong. And to be honest, until I've met some professors at the University of Missouri who were way more intelligent, way more thoughtful, way more well-read on these topics, who were, who were incredibly thoughtful around why they were believers. I didn't think that type of Christian existed, right? I thought it was a blind faith and, you know, you just need to have faith and you know, all that. It's not true at all. It was, there was a very well-reasoned faith and they challenged me to, to examine my atheism as much as they had examined their, their faith in, in Jesus. And honestly, when I, when I did the examination, I did the hard work, it crumbled. Uh, it crumbled under the, uh, under the weight of reality. And the reality was the, the luminous presence of Jesus in, and, and how it's permeated our society. And so, you know, I, I, I don't think you can ultimately, you can't reason your way to faith. I mean, ultimately the Holy Spirit has to grab you and, and it's all, it's all by grace, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, lo- loosening the atheism was something that uh, I think that was one of the first steps that, that actually I went down that path through. It's a great story, but I think, I think uh, there seems to be a string there. Your attraction yeah. to that guy, your study of why do people behave a certain way, and then you're kind of coming around, and then the way you're thinking now, I, I, somehow I doubt these are all coincidences. So what do we? Oh what, no! Yeah, you know. Oh no! I mean, look, undoubtedly, God has had a hold on my life. The call of my life, I felt from when I was a young child. I mean, I just the the pull of self and the desire for for gain overwhelmed me for a long period of my life, and and still overwhelms me to some point today. I mean, I have my moments. So, well, one of the one of the things we're trying to do with this podcast is is uh, you know speak to people that are on this journey, you know, at different ages and stages, and you know, you're a different age and stage than Jeff and I are, and Alan. Uh, but it's great to hear that struggle in you of, of uh, but you're on that right path and it's going to be fun to watch where it works out. But 
you know, one of the things we always like to, to ask in closing, uh, it's been just so much fun having you on here, uh, is, you know, what's the kind of, this is kind of a generally business owner to business owner, you know, we'll have some consultants and some other uh, people like that, that sort of serve that community uh, to give their wisdom. But in general, we, we want it to be heavily business owner to business owner. So if you're just thinking about, you know, somebody's at the gym on the treadmill and they're, they're, they're trying to do generosity in their business and, uh, and they're listening to you and they're identifying with your story, you know, we're trying to leave them with maybe a practical tip. You know, is there one thing that maybe they can do tomorrow, start doing a little differently, just some practical tip for them on their journey? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going to give the practical tip that you know, I got some, I got to, the, the pleasure of spending a bunch of time with, with David Green at one point and who's the, the founder and, and CEO of, of Hobby Lobby. And, and, you know, I was asking him a lot about his giving and, and what happened to the business. And, and if you look at, you know, the way that they, that they give, basically they shouldn't be able to be in business, right? Like it, it doesn't make sense that they're actually in business. And I don't think he would mind me sharing this. I think this is something that he's talked publicly about. But, you know, I, I said, when was the big inflection in the business? When did you, when did Hobby Lobby become like a thing, like a real thing? And he said, when we really started giving. And, and it's always stuck with me that the conviction, he wasn't saying, you know, follow the logic, right? It's, it's kind of like, I mean, kind of like the gospel, right? We don't, we don't do these things to be loved by Jesus. We don't do these things to earn God's love. We don't do these things to, to be justified. We are justified. We are loved, and therefore we love, right? And, he, and he's not saying, "Look, I did these things, you know, to, to to have a bigger business. I started giving more away." Like that's prosperity gospel garbage. That is not at all what what you know what's right. But he did say that that you know, if you really look at your life as being co-creating, growing the garden, you know, building the city with with Christ, like the power of Christ is real. Like it is real. It's it's un, unmistakable. And I think that what I would say to any business owner that's, that's listening to this is, you know, I sat in a room with, it was, you know, myself and probably 15 other guys. I was the youngest, poorest person in the room by country mile, right? And, you know, David looked around and, and I can't remember how this came up, but he said, you know, look, if you're not tithing, don't even talk to me about being a believer. And I remember, whoo, you talk about sitting straight up and, you know, a little bit of, little bit of chili pepper, you know, uh, got, got put in the, got put in the, in the sauce. And, you know, he said, he said, look, like we, we are called, it is not an option to be generous. If you really believe that you are saved by grace and grace alone, if you really believe that God is the, the creator of the universe who loves you deeply, wants desperately to have a relationship, wants to co-create with you, has given you this incredible honor, has, has crowned you with glory, right? If you really believe that, the decision to give is not even a decision. Of course, you're going to give. Of course, you're going to be generous. Of course, you're, you're, you are going to be the presence of God. Now, of course, we're marred by sin. And of course, we're on a, you know, a journey of sanctification. But I would just say is like stepping out in faith, especially for a business owner around money, it's really hard because look, you can always justify your lack of generosity. Well, look, I got to give my, I got to give my employees raises. Like I, you know, we've got inflation. We've got, you know, all these different things, right. That you can, you could argue is God in control or not? Is God going to give you what you should have? And is, going to, is God going to give you more if you can steward it? Absolutely. God, I think, is desperate to find people who he can give more to to steward, to be his hands and feet. And I would just encourage you to, to step out in faith and let that, let that stepping out in faith bolster your faith in all other areas. I mean, I think they're all interconnected. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to do the same. I need the same encouragement. I'm, I'm saying this to myself as much as, as, as the person listening. But um, 
you know, I just try to stand on stand on the shoulders of uh, people who've gone before me. Great! Wow, that's powerful. Just get started is what I'm hearing. <laughs> how do you how do you react to that? Yeah, that's powerful, Brent. Thank you so much for that encouragement. That's that's super powerful for for those that are listening in and on on the same journey along with us. Well, listen, appreciate you guys. Thank, thanks for fun, fun chat for being with us. And uh, Jeff, thank you for also joining us. Yeah, we will we will see you next week with uh, Mike Shero from from C12. Thanks again, Brent and Jeff. Brent, thank you. Really appreciate you. you. All right. Bye, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.